I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Um, happy Thanksgiving in a few days. Uh, we, you know, my family, we, re- we really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of rest, reflect a little bit, to uh, look back uh, on just the gear uh, and consider the many ways that God has been kind and, and, and faithful. But not just to look back, but to look around whether it's a, a room full of friends um, enjoying stories or a, uh, a table surrounded by, with food on it and, and surrounded by friends, um, to look back and to look around. And of course, right, to give thanks. If Thanksgiving uh, is a time of looking back and looking around, we're about to move into a season, a season of Advent, where we really look forward, right, to something. It is a season strongly associated with longing and hope uh, and expectation. You know, what are you looking forward to? Or we might say, what do you want for Christmas? And maybe you hear this question, what do you want for Christmas? And your mind instantly goes to that new snowblower at Lowe's or that new video game or a new North Face jacket. But I want you to put those things uh, aside for a moment. I'm not asking what do you want under the Christmas tree. I'm asking, what do you really, really want? What do you want out of this life? What do you hope for? What is your heart set on? You know, we really have an entire season set aside where we can sit with those questions. What do you want? Thanksgiving, right? Christmas, and then of course, right, New Year's. Come New Year's, we will have looked back. We will have looked around. We, would, we will have uh, looked forward. And then we come to this time where it's natural for us to ask, well, what next? No, having asked, what do I want? What, do I, what am I going to do about it? What are my goals or what are my resolutions? What are some of the steps that I'm going to take to move myself closer, you know, to make that vision a, a reality? This place of our aspirations uh, mixing with our actions, or if you like, our desires sort of coalescing with what we're going to do. This is the place, or this is is the place of ambition, right? Where aspiration meets actions and desire meets doing. That's the place, really, of ambition. We don't have to wait till New Year's to think about what our ambition is. I mean, we can do that now. Hopefully, we will. But it's natural for us to ask it then. Ambition. John Stott says, Our ambition is that which concerns our goals in life and our incentives for pursuing them. Our ambition uh, is what makes us tick. It's what drives us. It's a vision or a goal that we are striving towards. (coughs) Friends, we're all ambitious. We're all ambitious. Our ambitions may be big or small, but we all have an ambition. We all have a treasure. Each of us has something that we value. Each of us has our heart set on something. Each of us is seeking something first at the expense of something else. And this is true of us all. The question is, what is your ambition? We all have one, but what is yours? 
Jesus says that at the end of the day, uh, our options are really boiled down to two things that we can choose. Uh, Either you will lay up treasures on earth or you will lay up treasures in heaven. Either you are serving yourself or you're serving God. Either you're advancing your own kingdom or you're advancing his. Either you are getting glory or you're giving glory to God. And these really are your only two options. The outline for today's sermon is pretty simple. I just want to look at ambition A. What does it mean for you to live for your kingdom and your glory versus ambition B? What does it mean for you to live for God's kingdom and God's glory? Those are really the two points. Ambition A versus ambition B. Well, Jesus describes ambition A right, in a variety of ways. It's laying up for yourself treasures on earth. It's serving money and what it buys. It's being anxious about your life and your body, right, yourself. A preoccupation with your self-image, self-interest, self-improvement, self-protection, or self-advancement, self-fulfillment. Your kingdom, your glory. Now, it's important, it's very helpful for us to read Matthew 6, 19 through 34 straight through and not to break it up between verses 24 and 25, which the editors of many Bibles right, have done. And you probably see that in yours, right? They kind of split up 24 and 25, but that's not how Jesus delivered this, right? This was one sermon straight through, right? He didn't stop, take a break, right? This is one whole unit. And so the person who is serving money... And verse 24 is anxious or uh, obsessed with their life, right, uh, and their body, right, themselves in verse 25. The person who's serving is anxious, right? They're obsessive over themselves. Their primary care or concern is only for themselves. Money is obviously important, uh, but it's a means to an end. It's not an end of, in itself, Money works and it's valued because it helps protect and consolidate and advance this person's interests. The idea is that the more that I have, the better I am and the better I feel. But money itself is not the goal. The goal, right, is self-protection, self-satisfaction, or self-advancement. You could say it's protecting myself or pleasing myself or promoting myself. But it's all about me. It's all about my kingdom and my glory. Ambition A uh, is caricat- it's caricatured in pop culture and plays and movies like A Christmas Carol and right, Uncle Scrooge. It's, we see it as we watch or don't watch The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Jordan Belfort. But if you think uh, that you have to be rich or it's only the rich who are living this way, you're wrong. You don't have to have a lot of money to be selfish. Right? There are plenty of poor people who live very selfish lives, who think only about themselves. If you were to visualize this, if we were to make this a movie, it would be a movie where you are the star of the show. Like yours is the lead role. And your life right, is the central plot line of the movie. It's all about you. Because you are the lead, everyone else, including God, is, in some, is cast in some lesser role. 
maybe as an extra or an accessory, a prop, some backdrop to your life. They're just there. Or if they're not that, they're cast in some minor or supporting role. The best friend, the love interest, the sidekick, the villain. Everyone, God included, there to help you, love you, serve you. And if they're doing those things, well then great. But if they're not, they're not helping, they're hurting. Right? And they just need to be cast aside. Right? Most people would say, shoot, the script of that movie sounds eerily similar uh, to maybe the way that I think about my life. I'm the star of the show, and everyone else around there is there uh, to serve me and to please me. Right? It's all about me. And if that rings true or that sounds eerily familiar, well, that's the point. You don't have to be rich. You can be fairly ordinary, right, to live a very selfish life. This movie, which we could nickname or jokingly call Despicable Me, right, it may be popular, but it's not going to be listed among the greats, right? Uh, its glory is short-lived. It's a hit that will soon be forgotten. A life revolving around yourself and your kingdom and your glory is not only fleeting and short-lived, it's also incredibly unstable. It's unstable because it's a life with you at the center of it all. You know, we lack the same gravitas as God. We just do. Right? When something is weighty, right, that's what gravity means, like something has real weight, uh, the things that are smaller around it you know, can orbit around it and revolve around it and not be uh, crash into each other and collide. Things are in balance and in order. But when you put something small in the center, everything gets thrown off balance. It can be very uh, destructive. Well, a life with us at the center of it is very unstable because we have put ourselves in the place of God, uh, the place where only He belongs, and things readily spiral out of control. Your selfish ambitions, they're not just fleeting, they're not just unstable, they're unnecessary too. They're unnecessary because we have a Father in Heaven who knows what we need and takes care of us. You don't need to live that way. But finally, your selfish ambition is unworthy. It's unworthy. It's unworthy because a fleeting, fading kingdom that rusts and moths rust and moths will destroy. It's not worth your energy and investment. Why invest all this energy in something that moths, moths can destroy? It's not worth it. But more significantly, living for yourself is unworthy because in so many ways it sells yourself short. You're selling yourself short. You were meant to live for so much more than that, for so much more than yourself. You know, my iPhone uh, takes some pretty decent photos. But if all I did with my iPhone was take selfies, 
I would be denying its true potential. And the same is true for you in your life. If all you do with your life is to use it in some way that makes you look good, right? We could call it a selfie sort of life that advances you and your kingdom and your glory. Look how awesome I am. If that's all that you do with your life, you're denying your true potential. You're not recognizing your true worth. You were meant to be more and to do more than that, to be bigger and better than that. Your selfish ambitions, unworthy. Well, what would it look like for you to live rightly, to have a big life and a big vision for life? What would that look like? Well, G.K. Chesterton, he famously said, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. Your life story, it is significant, but it's not all about you. You are not the lead. Jesus is. But in the most ennobling sense possible, the star of the film has given you a very special and supportive role to play. You say, well, what what role is that? Well, Jesus tells you, explains to you in verse 33, what we should do, what our ambition should be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first, right, his kingdom uh, and his righteousness. In other words, make this your aim. Make this your ambition, right? Seek first. This is the language of ambition, right? Pursue this above all else. Seek this first. Make this your aim, right? The kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Well, the, t- the two questions that we're going to really spend the rest of our time asking and hopefully answering is, what is that? What is the kingdom of God? What is the righteousness of God? And how do these things relate? If this is what Jesus wants us to seek, what are those things? The kingdom of God, righteousness of God, how do they relate? Well, first of all, what is the kingdom of God? The, there are, broadly speaking, two kingdoms. The Bible uh, refers to uh, two kingdoms. Uh, the kingdom of this world uh, and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world is obvious to you. Right? It's the world that you woke up in today. It's beautiful. It is broken. Right? You don't need to use your imagination to sort of figure this one out. All you need is seeing eyes and hearing ears and a pulse, and you know what it is and what it is like. And the kingdom of this world contains all the other sort of earthly, lesser kingdoms. You know, We could say the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, and the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Donald Trump, right? the Insert your kingdom, right? It contains all of those, right? It's this world. Contrast that with the kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom of God is our world healed. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's everything wrong with our world made right the way things are supposed to be. That is what the kingdom of God is. Everything broken healed. 
Everything lost, restored. Everything wrong, made right. That's what the kingdom of God is. Now, can you imagine such a place? What would that look like? What would it sound like? What would it feel like? For starters, right? It'd be a world with no more sickness, right? No more disease. It'd be a world with no more war. We wouldn't open up our newspapers and read about people drowning in the Mediterranean, refugees drowning in the Mediterranean as they seek to find a place where they can live in safety. We wouldn't read about that anymore. There'd be no more racism. There wouldn't be any more ageism or sexism. There'd be no more loneliness or anxiety or depression. No more pornography. No more poverty. There'd be no more broken homes. And there would be no more abortion. All of life on this planet, not just the unborn, but all of it, human life and animal life and plant life, it would be treated with dignity and with respect. It would be a world full of love and laughter and goodness and beauty and truth. What would it look like if everything wrong in our world was made right. Here is why it is so important that you actually sit with that question. It's so important because if you cannot imagine it, you will not image it. If you cannot imagine it, you will not image it. Or to put it another way, if you cannot see it with the mind's eye, if you cannot see it, you will not seek it. So I ask, What would it look like if the world was made right? If you cannot see it, you will not seek it. So can you? Do you? If you can, Jesus says, good, good. Seek this first. Make this your ambition. Pursue this, right, above all else. Make this your ambition, a world fully healed, a world fully restored, everything wrong made right, seek first the kingdom of God. But that's not all he says, right? He says, seek first the kingdom of God uh, and his righteousness. Well, what does that mean, his righteousness? Well, obviously, the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God go hand in hand, right? Jesus pairs them up, right? He puts them together, but they're not synonymous. He's not saying the same thing twice, right? They're related, they're connected, but one is the result of the other. Okay, one is the result of the other. Uh, This word righteousness is the same word for justice. So you could say, seek the kingdom of God and, and seek God's justice, right? They're interchangeable. 
But in a perfectly just world, right, everything would be all right. right. Does that make sense? In a perfectly just world, everything would be all right. It would be righteous. Human beings in a perfectly just world would be living rightly all the time across all relationships. That's what a just world would be like. To help understand um, this concept of righteousness or justice, uh, I want to take you back uh, to the very beginning, right? The very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, where we see this. We see it clearly. Uh, It's in that chapter that we read about God creating the universe, right? He speaks everything into existence. And after each and every single day, he says, it is good. It is good, right? Seven times it's good. In the beginning, everything is good. Everything is all right. Everything is in its right place, doing what it was designed to do. Everyone and everything hears God's voice and is obedient uh, to that voice. There is no sin, right? There is no transgression, but everything in its right place, everything in order, in harmony, in balance, everything in perfect and right relationship. Right? In the beginning, it was righteous. Where did we fit in this beautiful picture? Well, we weren't at the center of things, right? God is very much the lead <laughs> in Genesis 1. But we find ourselves at the side. We find ourselves in a garden on a planet in this solar system, right on the outskirts of the material, material universe. And that's okay. It's okay for us to be there at the side. God loves us. But what are we doing here in this garden? Well, God has put us here. God has put you here to love him and to love others uh, and to love the world that he entrusted to our care. These are the relationships that we were made for. And in a righteous world, all of these relationships are right. right? They're okay. Sadly, right, two chapters later in Genesis 3, we see that all of these relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the world, right, it has been corrupted. It's been marred by sin, right, broken by the fall. And it's because these relationships are broken that they're not all right. It's because these relationships are broken. We don't see the kingdom of God on earth anymore. At least not in its fullness. This is where we find ourselves. Today, right? This Sunday, 2016, we live in a beautiful but broken world, right? This is where Jesus addresses us. And he addresses you, not in the garden, but outside of it, east of Eden. And he's asking you, what's your ambition? What's your ambition? Is your ambition to build a petty little kingdom amongst a bunch of briars and thorns? Is that what it's all about? Your kingdom, your glory. Or... Are you seeking to reestablish God's kingdom and his glory? Are you seeking his kingdom and his righteousness? Because, friends, we're not going back to the garden, but are you at work to build a garden city? 
to restore what was lost and to make wrong things right and to right wrong relationships. What are you seeking? Jesus says that we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And to seek his righteousness means, first of all, that we would get back into a right relationship with God. If righteousness means right relationships with God and each other and the world, and unrighteousness would mean broken relationships. To seek his righteousness means, right, let's get back into a right relationship with God. This is not something that we can do or achieve on our own. Jesus doesn't say, do your righteousness. He says, seek it. Because God has something that we need and don't have. It's not in our possession. We need something. We lack something. And we need to go to him to get it. How or in what ways, if we can't do it on our own, how are we going to be made right with God? I've told you, I've used this sort of illustration uh, before. Um, I, I really like it. It's a, a, it involves my dog, uh, our dog Coulter. Right? Um, we love our dog, and we love snuggling with him on the couch. Right? That's, things are right. We, we enjoy being near him. But what happens when our dog, and this happens from time to time, he leaves our house and he goes and he finds a dead squirrel and he rolls in it or, you know, something else that stinks and, and rolls in it. We still love our dog very, very much. But he has done something wrong and consequently it has impacted negatively our relationship. We still love him, but we can't enjoy nearness with him like we once had. Right? We can't enjoy sitting next to each other on the couch. As much as we love him and want to, it's just not possible. The only way that things are going to be made right is if Coulter is cleaned. And this is something that he cannot do on his own. Coulter cannot make himself well. He cannot restore what was lost. The only way that that's going to happen is if he comes to us and he allows us to clean him. The only way this wrong thing will be made right is if we, not him, right, clean him. What does it mean for us, right, sinners, right, dirtied by sin, polluted by sin? What does it mean for us to get right with God? Well, it, it begins with us recognizing that we're not all right and that we cannot cleanse ourselves. And to go to Jesus, to go to God in Jesus and say, would you cleanse me? Fortunately, not only is he capable of doing this, this is something he wants to do. You know, Jesus on the cross taking all of our sins upon him right? and when we put our faith and trust in him getting his perfect record in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church he says we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God be reconciled get into a right relationship for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Say it again. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
For us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness means we need to be reconciled with God, first and foremost. But once we are brought into a right relationship with God by faith in Christ, our other relationships begin to fall into proper place in relation to. We begin to relate well, rightly, with our family and our friends and our neighbor and our work in the world. We're not just the recipients of God's love and forgiving grace, but we become, in some ways, channels of it. And as we continue to seek the righteousness of God, right living and right relationships with God and one another in this world, we begin to see more and more the kingdom of God take shape in reality before our very eyes. And it starts off small, like a mustard seed. But it begins to grow. You won't see it maybe right away, but it's there. Like a mustard seed, and it will begin to grow. Last illustration. Sort of illustrate sort of this connection uh, between the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. I want you to leave this place knowing these things. Uh, we didn't do it this Thanksgiving, um, but... Um, it typically happens around Christmas where we gather the family and uh, we will put out a puzzle on a table, a big puzzle, maybe a thousand pieces, if you're really ambitious, right? 5,000 pieces. But there it is right before you, this giant wooden table, right, with a bunch of puzzle pieces scattered about. If you don't have the lid of that puzzle, all you've got is just this mess of puzzle pieces before you. It's very hard for you to put things back together again. You don't know what you're doing. What you need is an image. What you need is the box, right, with a picture on it, right? And then you find that box and you see the picture on it and you're like, oh, this is what that's supposed to look like, right? This whole mess of, of jumbled up, mixed up puzzle pieces, that is supposed to look like this. Friends, this is the kingdom of God. That image of everything... Everything messed up, put back together again, what is that going to look like? It's going to look like this. You need to see it first. Right? You need to envision it. But once you have that vision, what do you do next? What's the first thing you do? Once you've got that vision, you know, what's the first step in puzzling? Come on, shoot it out. Ask for help. Well, yeah, you can ask for help. But what's the next thing? I, th- I heard it. You find the corners, right? You find the edges, right? You start there. The first thing you do is you make those connections, right? Get right with God. Make those connections first. You know? You've got the image. You've got the the outline. You've been made right with God. You've made those connections. Well, from there, it gets a little bit easier, doesn't it? Kind of identify what's sort of obvious. You focus your attention there. Friends, these are the friends and family and, and, and neighbors, right? The, the relationships that are most obvious to you. Focus there. Get right there. And once you do that, you can begin to work out to the edges. And as you do this, right? right? As you put back together this picture, the kingdom of God, that image, right? The thing that you're working towards, it begins to take shape right before your very eyes. It starts with a vision. You start connecting things. And before you know it, you're seeing this thing realized before you. Every single day, you wake up 
you are presented with two choices. Whose kingdom am I going to work for today? Is it going to be me and my kingdom, or is it going to be God and his? Jesus tells you what your ambition should be. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Help piece back together what has been broken by the fall. And in this work, you will find all that you really want and all that you could ever ask for. Let's pray.